The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Exodus, as well as the book of Romans. From Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And now from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Trevor, for reading that passage for us so beautifully. Uh, So, we begin the Ten Commandments today. Here's a a principle that I'm going to be unpacking and, and referring to often throughout this series, and it's this. It's for every negative commandment in the Ten Commandments, for every thou shalt not, there is an implicit thou shall. There's an inverse of it. And so we're going to be talking about that because there's a beautiful, beautiful display of the mercy of Christ, of the gospel at work in the negatives, but also in the positives that they then give us. And so we have this first one, the Ten Commandments, they open with, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the negative, right? What's the inverse of this? It's you shall have me as your God. You shall have me as your only God. If I just said at this point in the sermon, let's just take the next 20 minutes and think about that. We would begin to scratch the surface of how profound that is that the God, uh, the creator of heaven and earth, says to his creation, says to his people, I desire a relationship with you and an exclusive one where I am all that you ever will need. There is no other God like that. There is no other religion like that. But that's who God is. He offers himself 
to be our only God. And it's profound because it means that we can go through this life completely unmoored, adrift, or, or we can be tethered to the creator of all things forever who loves us and who loves us as his own. So let's get into that. In 1897, there was an art collector named Julius Werner who purchased a copy of one of Botticelli's most famous works, Madonna of the Pomegranates, which the original hangs in the world-renowned Uffizi Gallery in Florence alongside works from Michelangelo and Da Vinci and Rembrandt. So uh, here, the one on, what would that be? The, the one on that side, that'd be your left, right? That's the left would be the one that's in the Uffizi Gallery, that's the, the original, and the one here on the, on the right is the copy that Werner purchased. So a long time ago, it was pretty common practice for there to be uh, painters, artists, who their job was to copy famous works of art. So somebody would say, I'd love to have a Mona Lisa. Well, this was before the days of digital photography. This would be the days where somebody would go into an art museum with their paint and their easel, and they would sit in front of it, and they would make a copy of it. And then you would buy that copy, and you would have it in your home. Uh, maybe you've been to an art museum, and you've seen people in the galleries with art supplies. That, that still happens. Um, but this was a common thing. And so when Werner uh, bought his copy of Madonna of the Pomegranates, that's what he thought he was getting. He thought he was getting a, a, uh, a copy of the original that somebody had painted for somebody else a long time ago. And uh, after his death, the copy went to a conservation charity called uh, English Heritage in England. Uh, and a few years ago, the... English Heritage senior conservator, a woman named Rachel Turnbull, decided to follow up on a hunch because she would see this painting and there was something just not quite right about it. Um, and it, it, what it was, was was that it had too many resemblances to the original, but it also had too many differences from the original that, that a, a, a copyist wouldn't have made if, if, they had, if they were making a copy. But the version that she had was, was covered in this coat of varnish that gave it this kind of cheap yellowish tint. And so she followed up on the hunch and she had um, some people who did art restoration remove the varnish and restore the work and authenticators came in and they said, this is, this is a copy of Madonna of the Pomegranates, but it's a copy that was painted by Botticelli. So he had an actual Botticelli the whole time and never knew it. Never knew it. He wanted the real thing, but that's out of reach, right? So you don't even think about having the real thing. You think, I'll just go online and I'll get a copy of it, but I can't have the real thing. And so what he did, because it's unattainable to have the real thing, is he settled for a reasonable facsimile, and you can't blame him because it never occurred to him that he could have had the real thing, much less that he did have the real thing. When it comes to objects of devotion, when it comes to objects of true satisfaction, the thing that'll take your heart and just satisfy you, we are a people who 
will settle for knockoffs. We will just settle for knockoffs. And we'll not only do that, but we will count ourselves lucky to find a good one. We'll say things like, I know that I was made to experience profound joy. But joy eludes me and I will settle for stimulation. I'll, st I'll settle for entertainment. Or we'll say, my heart longs to be known, really known, and loved at the same time, to be known and to be loved at the same time. But I'll, I'll settle for just not being alone. Or we'll say, I want to be cherished. I want to be the object of somebody's affection, but I will take being prized for my appearance, for my wealth, for my talents. And the reason we do this is because of what I said at the beginning, and that is that we are worshipers by nature. We, we can't help ourselves. We worship. And so it isn't ever a question of whether you worship something. The question is, what do you worship? And this is a place where, like, atheists don't get a free ride on this. You can't just declare that you don't believe in God as a way of also saying, I don't worship, because all of us worship. And our hearts are made to do this, to find meaning, to find purpose, to find rest, to find something that accounts for our existence. And then to lash ourselves to the mast of that thing. So the question is, what do we worship? And for many of us, we just aim way too low because we've kind of given up on the idea that the real thing could ever be something we could get. But what if, like what if, like Werner, the masterwork of, of deep satisfaction for your soul is available? You just don't know it. What if we're, we're hunting for counterfeits and looking for the best counterfeits we could find, not realizing that the genuine article is actually available to you, and it has been. It has been the whole time. That's what the first commandment is about. The first commandment is about what our hearts were meant to long for, and then our tendency to try to meet that longing by giving our affections to lesser things, to other gods. Paul gets into this right away in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, is perhaps one of the most complete uh, systematic theologies in the Bible in terms of under explaining uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The book of Romans, Paul is walking people carefully through that. And in chapter one, he starts with just this grim picture of humanity. He holds nothing back. It's a grim picture. And notice he isn't aiming at any one particular group of people uh, that he has a problem with. He's, he's talking about a profoundly human problem that affects everybody. The world is broken. You're broken. I'm broken. We're all broken. Everything's broken. And then Paul says, and you're, you're held accountable for your own brokenness. That's, an, that's a pretty unpalatable uh, thing to say in our day and age, right? That, that I'm a, a responsible, not responsible, that I'm accountable for my own brokenness before God. 
The alternative is, is that we're not accountable at all for our brokenness before God. But Paul writes this. He says that God puts his glory and his character on display in creation in such a way that his divinity and his power and his righteousness are apparent. Again, that's another hard thing, especially in our day and age, to accept. Because Paul is saying we are without excuse for worshiping God because he's put enough of himself on display that we seek to worship something because of what we're seeing. And in our brokenness, even though God displays his glory, we deny his glory. We refuse to see him. And then this makes us undeserving of God's grace, which is what makes grace amazing, right? Is that God gives his grace, he gives his mercy to people who don't deserve it, which is really the whole idea of mercy and grace. And so in our brokenness, we deny the glory of God, we deny his presence, we deny the reality of his divinity, we deny our responsibility and our obligation to worship him, and we choose to live apart from him. And Paul says, that is the work of denying the masterpiece in favor of a more affordable counterfeit. You exchange the truth of God for a lie. Instead of worshiping God, you worship created things. And so it's, it's a grim, I told you, it's a grim picture of humanity that he opens up with. He's not pulling any punches. And you have to ask the question, what's he fighting for here in this text that we read? Remember, we're, we're, we're in chapter one of 16 chapters of Romans. He's gonna go on an amazing, amazing ride here. But his grim view of humanity, what he's doing is he's setting the stage to unfold how God has stepped in to our rejection of him and has rescued us from it. And that's amazing because all of us long to be known. We long to be loved. We want to know joy. We want to know satisfaction. We want to feel whole. We want life to be a wonder. And instead, we'll say, I'll buy the copy and I'll just have it. But here's the thing life is a wonder. Life's amazing. It's good to be alive. Life is rich, and God has surrounded us with wonder and beauty and joy. It's, it's there. But when things like joy and things like pleasure and things like wonder become the end goal in themselves, they end up being hollow. And the reason they end up being hollow is because we don't find in them the thing that we're really looking for. Because these things are not meant to be found through things that we do ultimately, but they're meant to be found in who we worship. They're meant to be found in relationship to God. And so you're not gonna find a true satisfying sense of wonder and joy in a vacuum. You're gonna find that in a relationship. And you're gonna find that ultimately in its most satisfying way in a relationship with your creator. And how do we know this is the case? How do we know that this is even what God wants for us? Well, it's because of the way that the first command starts. The first command starts by talking about a relationship. It start, the Ten Commandments open with God saying, this is who I am to you, this is who you are to me. This isn't a detached deity who's particular about a few things and he wants to lay them out on two tablets of stone. This is about a God saying to a people group, to a, to a people, you are mine and I am yours forever. 
And that's how the Ten Commandments open. God is saying, I am the Lord who? I am the Lord your God. I am your God. He identifies himself as being theirs. And so he may say, well, okay, yeah, what about it? Well, he clarifies what it means that he is your God, that he is their God. And he says, I'm the, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. He delivered them. So the Lord your God is your deliverer. He has a relationship with them. He's their mighty rescuer. He's not just a powerful deity, but he's somebody who has called them, who has fought for them, who has rescued them, who has kept them, who has led them. And so when God commands us to have no other gods before him, it's not because he's insecure that we might find another God who's better, because there is no other God. Other gods aren't real. Now, it's because... He means for us to understand that we are to take him as our God with everything that we have and with everything that we are. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in the passage where uh, Pharaoh takes away the straw from the people of Israel. So the story is they're the slaves in Egypt and Moses has come to Pharaoh and he has said to him, it's time for you to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who are you? And he says, well, it's not me you should really be worried about, it's the Lord. And he says, I don't know God. I don't know this Lord you speak of. And Moses says, well, you, you need to, you need to let, let the Lord's people go. And so Pharaoh responds by saying, you know what, my people, uh, my slaves, the, the Israelites, are, they don't have enough to do. Uh, so I'm going to take away the straw that we supply them to, use the, to make the bricks for building my empire. Uh, and I'm going to make them go gather their own straw. But they still have to meet the same quota of bricks every day. And if they don't, he tells the taskmasters, beat them. And so it creates this situation where Moses walks in and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, not only am I not going to do that, but I'm going to make their slavery to me even more miserable as a result. And so what do the people of Israel do? They go to Moses and they say, we wish we'd never met you. You've ruined things for us. You have made our lives miserable. And then Moses goes to God, and he says to God, you have made their lives miserable. And not only that, you haven't delivered any of us at all. And that's what you said you were going to do, and you haven't. What they're missing is their thinking because Moses intervened as a messenger of the Lord to tell Pharaoh to let them go. They think as a result of that, Pharaoh took away their straw. What they're missing is the Lord took away their straw. God took away their straw because they were not truly Pharaoh's slaves. They were God's people. That's who they were. And so the Lord created an untenable situation for them to be able to remain as the slaves of Pharaoh. Why? Because God is saying, you have taken a name. You have taken the name of Pharaoh's slaves, but you're not Pharaoh's slaves. You're my people. You're mine by covenant. It's not just that you don't belong to Pharaoh. It's that you do belong to me. 
And so sometimes the Lord takes away our straw, right? And says, you've, you've, you've been working at a situation, you've been trying to create a situation where your slavery to this world has become workable. But that's not who you are. You're not a slave to this world. And so the Lord will take away the things that we have in place to make that work. And when he does this, our response can be like Moses and like Israel, where we'll look at God and we'll say, you are, you're messing things up for me. C.S. Lewis talked about this when he said, he said, we can be like children who go on making a mud pie in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That we will settle for the counterfeit when the real thing is not only available to us, but it is right there. It's right in front of us. Ten Commandments. It can be real easy to look at the Ten Commandments as though, okay, the other shoe is dropping now. You know, the Lord made a covenant. He led them out of Egypt. He delivered them from Pharaoh, swallowed them up in the Red Sea. Everything's good. Now the other shoe is dropping where the Lord is now going to say to them, uh, okay, I led you out of slavery, I fed you, I kept you safe. Now it's time for the rules. So let's get to work. It's time for a new yoke. But that's not how the Lord's word, that's not how the, the Lord's law works. Jesus says, come unto me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because in Christ, he keeps the law for us. We obey out of love, but he keeps the law for us. God's law gives us structure. It gives us direction, and we need these things. Why do we need these things? Because we're ultimately called to do the way Jesus boiled the whole law of God down is he said basically what we're ultimately called to do is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's it. That's the point of the law of God, is to love God and to love others. Jeremiah said that obeying God's law isn't meant to feel like a task. It's not meant to feel even like a duty. It's meant to feel like an expression of a deep, abiding affection that's in our hearts. So what are we expressing when we obey when the Lord says, have no other gods before me, our response should not be, I hope God doesn't catch me worshiping another God. Our response should be, I'm in a relationship with him. I'm in a relationship with my maker. I'm not adrift in the cosmos. I'm in a covenant relationship with my creator. And he's given his law covenantally. It's a relational law because he is our God. He has called us out of slavery and oppression into the place that he has for us for all eternity. And this is then how we live. We follow him. We obey him. We receive his law as given to us for our good. Obedience to God's law is not something that is designed to keep God off your back, right? I know 
that many of you have worked, because if you work long enough, you'll find yourself in a situation where your approach to your job is to just not be noticed by anybody, right? Put your head down, get your job done, stay off the grid, don't let anybody see me. Why? Because what I'm really trying to do to get through the day is just to keep everyone off my back. And the way I can do that is just be invisible as possible. Obedience to God is not designed to work that way. It's not to keep God off our back. That's not why we do it. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to shape our hearts to truly know him and to truly love him. It's meant to so deepen our knowledge and familiarity with him that we know the real thing when we see it and we can spot a fake a mile away. If Jesus said the law of God could be summarized by loving God and loving others, then we have to know that the Ten Commandments, which we're stepping into this week, are meant to do just that. They're meant to kindle our love for God and our love for others. It's almost like the two tablets of stone. One tablet is about loving God and one tablet is about loving people. And we'll kind of see that. I'm hesitant to declare that, to say, you see folks, five of these commandments are loving God and the other five, because they're both, they're all both, right? I love people well by loving God well. I love God well by not lying and by not bearing false witness against my neighbor. Like they're all connected to each other, but they're there. Love God, love your neighbor. God is offering us a holiday at the sea with this command. He's offering us the real thing. Don't have any other gods before me because you can have me as your God. And for many, the idea that anything could ever even be known about our reason for living is unfathomable. That existence is and just shall remain this murky mystery, but God's law is telling us, no, that's not the case. You have a God who loves you and who is able to deliver you from whatever tyranny has its hooks in you. And the God who calls you to worship him alone delivers and he rescues and he loves and he preserves and he keeps. I want to close this sermon very briefly with a call to repentance. And, you know, this is, I'm just going to, well, that's all I'm going to say about it. This is a call to repentance. May the Lord give us ears to hear. Romans 1, the passage Trevor read, it says this. This is part of what he read. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, the counterfeit, rather than the real thing, who is blessed forever. Amen. You may feel like you've settled. You may hear that passage, which is tremendously convicting for me to read. You may feel like you've settled for fading copies of wonders that your heart suspects exist but are just out of your reach. And you may think that that's all that's available to you. It's not. It's not. You can have the real thing. You can have a relationship with your creator through Christ. Jesus calls you to repent of chasing after other gods and he calls you to find forgiveness and mercy and grace and rest in him. And so I invite you to take him as your only God, knowing that this is at his invitation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the Ten Commandments opening with this statement that tells us that you want us, that you want a relationship with us. The reason we're not to have any other gods before you is because you are to be so fully satisfying to our hearts that we want no other God. And there is nothing in you that would prevent that from happening, but Lord, there's plenty in us that would prevent it. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us to see the ways that we have chased after other lovers, that we have sought after other gods, the ways that we have bowed and worshiped to things that we think will give us meaning and significance and worth in life, things that are poor copies of the glory and the wonder and the joy that is inherent, inherently a part of who you are. Uh, Father, we thank you for your presence in this place, and we ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts as we come to your table this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.